doing a series uh, called Blessed, um, and it's based on the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And um, I'm going to read to you this morning a passage from the book of Revelation and chapter 1, uh, starting at uh, verse 9. This series called Blessed uh, c- comes from the fact that at the start of this book, we read the words in, in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And this book, Revelation, also ends with the same promise. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this book. So we want to do what this book says. We want to listen to it and hear it and put it into practice. And then we will be blessed. So let's read some verses from chapter 1 of Revelation, uh, starting at verse 9. This is a vision that John is having on the island of Patmos. And he says this. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. And his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Last time, last week, as we introduced this series, we talked about the fact that this is a letter that we're going to be studying, that this is a letter to the seven churches in modern-day Turkey, these seven churches that are named. It's a letter of encouragement from the Apostle John to a church that is being persecuted, um, that is suffering greatly under the Roman Empire. The Uh, emperor at that time, uh, Domitian, was persecuting the Christians uh, to a terrible extent. Uh, One of the things that they would do, they would tie 
the arms of Christians to one horse and they would tie the legs to another horse and then they would whip the horses apart and they would rip their bodies apart. They would throw them to the lions. They would drill into their skulls and pour molten lead inside. They would do terrible things to these Christians and because of their faith and Domitian set himself up as a god, as the everlasting king, as Caesar or Kaiser Curios, the, the Caesar is Lord and he would demand that he was worshipped. And these Christians said we can worship only one Lord who is Jesus Christ, which is one of the reasons that John was exiled to the island of Patmos. So John is writing a letter to the churches to encourage them in the midst of persecution. And there are three things in Revelation that he'll be addressing as persecution, there's seduction, and there's deception. And, and John writes to address all of those things in the church and to seven churches. And those churches represent all the churches down the ages. And there's something here for every one of us to be encouraged in difficult times. And that is what this, what this book of Revelation is. We also said that it, it's a prophecy. It is the word of the Lord. It is words that come from heaven that speak to the church to edify and encourage them and to uh, describe their situation and to look forward with hope. And it, it is also a revelation, the name of the book. And uh, the Greek is apocalypse. And we get a bit nervous about the thought of apocalypse, the, the apocalypse, the end of times and the destruction of the world. But apocalypse just means unveiling. And, and, and much of this book is John pulling back the curtain of heaven and saying to these Christians, look, there is a reality above and beyond what you can see with your physical eyes, what you are currently experiencing. There is a heavenly reality that I want to describe to you in clear terms to give you hope and to give you a different perspective. So last week we talked about, we talked about persecution and we talked about a perspective, a new perspective to, to look up and to see what's really happening behind all of these scenes, to, who is really in control. And also we talked about praise, the fact that John ended last week by praising God, by worshipping Jesus and saying he is the faithful witness. He is the one that has gone before us. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is raised up. He is the, he is the Lord of the kings of the earth. He is, the, he is in charge. We don't need to be afraid. So that's what this is and what we are looking at today. And in these verses that I've just read, John has a powerful vision of who Jesus is that he is going to share with those who are suffering because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's going to write these words down as commanded by God to the seven churches. And we read that he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's having a kind of spiritual experience. He's on, in, on the first day of the week and he hears, uh, we read, he hears a, a loud voice like a trumpet. I turned around, he says, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. As John starts to describe what he sees, we will hear the phrase a lot, like. It was like this. I, I saw something, and it was like this, and it was like this. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to describe this heavenly vision in earthly 
tongues in earthly terms. And he doesn't quite have the words. So he's saying, well, it was like this and it was like this. He, he doesn't quite know how to describe what he's saying. So the best he can do is use imagery that his hearers and his readers will be familiar with. And when we're reading Revelation, as we will be doing these coming weeks, we need to have our glasses on with, with two lenses. Now, I have reached a certain age where I need to put these glasses on if I'm going to read properly. I went to the opticians a while back, and I had noticed that my eyes were getting a little bit fuzzy. I couldn't quite see properly, so I did the eye test, and I could read the top lines, and I was starting to struggle in the middle and making it up completely by the time I got to the bottom and uh, trying to do it from memory from when I was at school doing the eye tests. And then all of a sudden, the, the optician uh, started to whiz these lenses in front of my eyes and they would come down in front of me and um, all of a sudden, this blur in front of me just became absolutely clear. I could see I was absolutely, I was so astounded, I burst into song. <laughs> I can see clearly now, <laughs> the rain is gone. No, I didn't, I didn't do that. But I could, I could see clearly now. The lenses came down and, and as, we, as we read Revelation, we need two lenses to understand what we're reading. The first lens is to read it as we said last week, as apocalyptic literature, as a type of writing that uses powerful imagery and, and vivid symbols. So it's, it's like if you were looking at an impressionist painting. Now, if you went up close, all you would see would be pixels and dots, and you wouldn't really understand what you were saying, but seeing. But if you stepped back, you would see a picture, you would see a clarity. And as we read Revelation, we have to understand that the images that we are seeing, the, the beasts and the dragons and the fire and the earthquakes and the four horses and, and all of these descriptions, they are a type of literature that paints a vivid picture to describe what is happening in, in spiritual reality. And so when we read it, we, we can't get too bogged down with the details. It'd be like looking at the pixels of an impressionist painting. You've got to stand back and see the big picture. That's one lens through which we have to read Revelation. We have to read it as that kind of literature to understand it. The other lens that we have to read through when we're reading Revelation is the lens of the Old Testament. There are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And when John is writing to them, he's using an imagination and a language and a vernacular that the people that would hear him in that day would be able to picture and understand because they would be drawing on their understanding of the Old Testament. So when we read Revelation, we need to put our glasses on and we need to see through the lens of the type of literature that we're reading and the fact that this is strongly alluding to the Old Testament. And so... John says, I turned and I saw, and I saw one like the Son of Man. Yeah. It's a Hebraic way of saying a human being. I saw one that was like a human being. But it's also an Old Testament term that we find in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7. And 
People would have heard that immediately. They would have seen that lens. I saw one like a son of man. And we go to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament of the Bible. And we read these words in Daniel 7, 13, 14. In my vision, Daniel seeing a vision, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So John would immediately draw us back to that image of one like a son of man, the vision of Daniel and his hearers would hear that and see that. But look at um, some of the, th- the ways that he describes um, the Son of Man that he sees. The one, like a Son of Man, is standing among the seven lampstands. Sometimes in Revelation we will puzzle over some of the imagery that's used and we will scratch our heads and we will try to understand what John is saying and what the image means and what the number signifies But there's no such puzzle here in verse 20. It says the seven lampstands are the seven churches that John is writing to. And Jesus, one like a son of man, John sees is standing in the middle of these seven lampstands of the seven churches. He's right in the middle of them. And as uh, Daryl Johnson says, right there in the middle of the churches, which is why in each of the messages that Jesus then dictates to the seven churches. Jesus can say, I know. I know what is happening in and among you. I know your hard work. I know your struggles. I know your fears. I know your pain. I know your emptiness. The risen and living Jesus lives and moves among the churches. He is moving among us as a church. I was reading this week in the paper about the King of England, Charles. They've turned up here and there, haven't they? And they've shaken hands. And I was listening to one, it was on the radio. Actually, I was listening to the radio and it was this American who was absolutely euphoric that he'd flown over from the States And he was queuing up and all of a sudden the King of England appears and shakes his hand. And he's absolutely speechless. He can't say it. He's so touched by the fact that he's just shaken the hand of the King of England. And there is one here, the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man who walks amidst the church, who comes near. We sing, don't we, in the song, Waymaker, you are here, moving in our midst. We worship you. We worship you. You are the way maker. You are the miracle worker, the promise keeper. You are a light in the darkness. And what John sees as he turns and hears this trumpet voice and looks in this vision, he sees one like a son of man standing amongst the seven lampstands in the middle of the churches. He sees not a a distant God, a distant deity looking down, looking in at these poor persecuted Christians who who are suffering for their faith. There's proximity here. There's a shared experience. There's a a closeness both, both between John and his congregation and also between Jesus and his church. Jesus 
we read in the Bible, became flesh and he dwelt among us. That's what we call the incarnation, God in the flesh. Not just a human monarch walking amongst his people, but the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God himself came near and he dwelt among us, the Bible says. He became one of us. He became human and also divine. And John is saying, you are not alone, but God is with you. He says it of himself, I am your brother, I am your companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So John is identifying with them. He saying, I'm suffering too. I'm here banished on the Isle of Patmos. I am with you. I'm suffering with you, dear church. But he's also saying there is one here, one like a son of man who is close and who knows everything about you and who walks among you. He's closer than a brother. He knows he is present. He is human and he is divine. And he offers comfort and companionship. But John sees more when he looks and sees this vision of Christ, one like a son of man. He says in verse 13, he was, he was dressed in a robe down to his feet with a golden sash across his chest. A long robe, again to John's hearers, would depict a high priest in the Old Testament. Jesus, John is saying, is dressed like a high priest who stands in the gap for us and represents us. The book of Hebrews in the Bible says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. And Nancy Guthrie says in her book, standing in the midst of his suffering church is our high priest, our mediator, representing us before the Father, interceding for us, protecting us from any accusation that might damn us through the once and for all sacrifice of himself. Jesus stands as the high priest, as the priest who represents us. The Latin for priest is pontifex, and that means, it's an engineering term, it means to build bridges, it's a bridge builder. Jesus is the priest who bridges the gap between God and man who came and died on a cross so that we could find access to God through him. He is the ultimate bridge builder, the priest who stands in the gap for us, the one who builds the bridge across so that we can walk over it. He is the one, John reminds us, who has freed us from sin. He has called us a kingdom of priests and he is the great high priest for us. But also, John says, he has a golden sash across his chest, which shows that he is not only our high priest, but that he is also our king. This is the garb of a king. He is the ruler, John says, does he not? He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And as Caesar stands up and calls himself the everlasting king, calls himself Dominus et Deus, Lord, God, and Lord and God, King and God, everlasting God. This is what Caesar's saying. You must come and worship. You must bow down. John has a counter vision. John has a vision of one who is the Lord of the kings of the earth. He said he, he wore a long robe and I, across his chest I saw a golden sash and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's picturing reality for the church, for the suffering church. 
for the one who is truly king, the one who is truly Lord, the one who is the great high priest. And he says in verse 14, his head and his hair were like, were white like wool, like snow. Again, John knows that these are the words used in the vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7. The one who has hair like, which is white like wool, like snow. The same vision that that Daniel had of the ancient of days. And he is declaring here that he's seeing Jesus. He's seeing the one who, who is the ancient of days. He's declaring that he is God. He is one with God the Father. He is God the Son. He is one with God the Holy Spirit. And his is an agelessness and a wisdom and a, and a deity that is unequaled. He is fully human. He is one like a son of man, but he is fully divine. He is God. And John describes him in the same way that Daniel describes God in his vision in Daniel chapter 7. And John says he is fully wise, he is fully pure, and he is ageless. And then in chapter 1 and verse 14, as John writes down this vision of what he's seeing, he says his eyes were like a flame of fire. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Jesus is not only pure, but he is purifying. The eyes of the Lord look not only at us, but through us. His fire illuminates and penetrates. There's a moment in the Bible that describes a, a, a disciple of Jesus called Peter, who had failed spectacularly. And there is a moment where Jesus, it, that we, we read that Jesus looks at him. He looks at Peter. And here he looks at John and his eyes, John says, his eyes were like, were like a flame of fire. They just cut right through me. They were so piercing, so refining, so purifying. And we know that Jesus looks at us and he loves us and he purifies us. And then John says, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Bronze is a combination of iron and copper. The strength of iron, the endurance of copper. And the endurance and the foundation of Jesus' power, John is saying, has been tested by fire and it will endure. All other kingdoms, John is saying, are on shaky foundations. God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, rests on feet that will endure forever. Again, if we read this through the lens of the Old Testament, we will be reminded of a vision in Daniel that was given to the king of Babylon of a great statue with feet of iron and clay representing human kingdoms which will collapse and will not stand. The vision is coming to the king of Babylon in the book of Daniel to say that these feet of iron and clay are of these kingdoms, these all-powerful, seemingly all-powerful kingdoms, whether it's the kingdom of Babylon or whether it's the Roman Empire now oppressing the church of Jesus Christ or in our time and in our day, whether it's the Soviet Union or whether it's Nazism or whatever kingdom seems to rise, seems to have power, 
They have feet of iron and clay. Whatever is not built ultimately on the truth of God will not last, will not last. It will not endure. As we see kingdoms collapsing, as we see uh, thrones diminishing, John is seeing the one who, whose feet were like burnished bronze, who was refined in a furnace. And in Daniel chapter 7, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed his kingdom and his kingdom will never be destroyed and John says we are standing here on a foundation on a on a firm foundation and this Roman Empire that seems to have all of the power and, and have all of the cards. Not long after this, only a couple of centuries after this, the Roman Empire would dissipate, would fall to pieces and Christianity would spread like wildfire right throughout the earth. And today the Roman Empire is no more but Christianity, <laughs> over two billion adherents around the world. This was a spiritual reality that John was seeing. And he says, it might not look like this now, but this is what I am seeing. I'm seeing one like a son of man. I'm seeing one who is the ultimate king, not, not Caesar, but the Lord, the ancient of days. I'm seeing one who has all wisdom and knowledge with hair like wool. I'm seeing one who has a piercing gaze, who sees right through all that is going on, whose feet are like burnished bronze, whose kingdom will never cease and will never uh, fade away. This is the one we serve. This is heavenly reality as John encourages his fellow believers. We sing the lion and the lamb. He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the realm of spiritual reality. And in our day and in our time, it may seem that Christianity is in retreat or that the church is diminishing or that other cultures are flourishing, but anything that is not built on the truth of God will not last. And God's kingdom will last forever. His dominion will last forever. And of his kingdom there is no end. <laughs> and it will only increase until he comes again. This is the promise, the encouragement to these believers. It's a promise and an encouragement to us. And listen to the voice of God that is speaking. John says his voice was like the roar of many waters. We've been to the Niagara Falls. We've been on the Made, made, made in the Mist, is it? Made of the Mist, the ship that sails close to the... You hear the thunder you can go behind the falls and stand in the cave and listen to the thundering water. And John says his voice was like, was like the roar of many waters. Such power, such purity as he speaks. And out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword. This is an image that we will see throughout Revelation. 
His words both cut and wound and heal. They are double-edged. It's a double-edged sword. Some of the words that Jesus speaks to the early churches will challenge them and cut them to the heart, but also heal them. And his is a powerful word and one that cuts and speaks into circumstances and lives. Words that wound and heal, that challenge and comfort, awe inspiring power and elegance. Sometimes when God speaks to us, it's not always comfort. Sometimes it's a challenge. Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshipping an idealized version of yourself. And then John speaks of Jesus' personal radiance, his face. As I looked at him, his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This is the radiance that was promised by Aaron when he was instructed to bless God's people and to say the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift up the light of his countenance upon you. Give you peace. This wasn't the first time that John had seen Jesus' face like this. Shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountainside. And what happened next is described in Matthew chapter 17. There we read he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. John has seen this face before, the transfigured, glorified face of Jesus Christ. Jesus in all of his glory. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Such radiance, such power, such glory, such beauty. And in his right hand, John says, he held seven stars. And we read in verse 20, if we're wondering what the seven stars are, we read the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. He holds these churches, he holds the angels of the churches in his hand. Daryl Johnson, who he says the readers of John's day would have understood even more of this in that they believed at that time there were seven planets, the astrology of that day said there were seven planets that uh, represented the whole of the universe and, and that John's readers and John's hearers would even understand that Jesus holds the whole world in his hands. The seven stars, the seven churches, the seven angels of the seven churches. He holds the whole world in his hand. He holds the little child in his hand. He holds you and me in his hand. We read the words of the psalmist, Psalm 139, which says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depth, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the side, far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Jesus is holding the church. He's holding them in his right hand, his righteous right hand. He said, you may, you may be torn apart by horses, you may be thrown to the lions, you, you may be seduced, deceived, 
You may be facing persecution. You may be struggling in your life right now, but Jesus holds you in his hand, in his righteous right hand. He holds the whole world in his hand. He holds you in his hand, his powerful right hand. There's a sign here of of his dominion, of his power, of his keeping power, of his saving power. Nothing can pluck us from his hand. So Jesus knows, John says to this church and to us, he knows, he's among us. He's in the middle of the seven lampstands. Jesus sees his piercing gaze, his eyes like flames of fire. They see right through the darkness, right through you. They see. And Jesus is in control. He might not seem to be in control. We may have lost our leaders to death and to persecution. We may be facing exclusion at work because of what we believe. We may be struggling in many ways, but his righteous right hand holds us. He has the whole world in his hand. He is king and lord of the universe. He is the lord of the kings of all of the earth. And what's John's reaction to this vision? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So holy, so powerful, so mighty, so awesome. And this is the reaction of everyone throughout scriptures, of Isaiah and of Daniel and others that encounter the living God in this way. I fell at his feet as though dead. It's too holy, it's too pure, it's too powerful. And then, John says, he placed his right hand on me. (laughs) The one who holds the stars, the one who holds the universe, the cosmos, this cosmic king, reached out, John says, and he touched me. And he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This great vision and, and even this great king has the moment, has the time to reach out and touch Johnny as one of such mercy, the one who holds the stars is a man, as a God of compassion and mercy who's got time for you and time for me who will reach out and touch. There's no one beyond his reach. His arm is not too short to save you. His touch is still as compassionate and merciful as it ever was, even if it is also as powerful and mighty as it ever was. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I was dead, but now I am alive, (laughs) and I hold the keys. (laughs) I went into the prison of death, and I burst forth through it, and now I've got the keys to death, and the keys to hell, and there is nothing that Satan, or his minions, or his dominions can do to you, because I've got the keys, Jesus says, to death and hell. The disciples of Jesus need not fear the Nero's and the demissions of this world. Even if they're led away to the prison of death, Jesus says, look, I've got the keys. You don't need to fear death because I was dead, but now I am alive. I am the firstborn from among the dead and you can follow me. I took the keys with me. 
I am alive and I have the keys and you do not need to be afraid. Imagine what this meant to John as he wasted away on the island of Patmos facing death, facing exile. Imagine what he was wondering as he lay there. Would I die? Will I die here? Is this it? Imagine what these words meant to those believers who were facing the reality of death every day. Jesus says, I'm in charge of death. And the place you go to when you die, I'm in charge of that, Jesus says. You don't need to be afraid. And I want to read to you an excerpt from this book that we're accompanying our series with, Blessed by Nancy Guthrie. There's also a podcast if you want to listen to it. I've been listening to it as I've been driving in the car this week where she interviews various theologians about the book of Revelation. So if you want to listen to the podcast, it's called Blessed as well. This is what Nancy Guthrie writes in her book. She says, Have you ever needed to hear Jesus say, Don't be afraid, I hold the keys to death? I have. In 1998, my husband and I had a daughter and we named her Hope. That name seemed to fly in the face of everything about her life because from the world's way of looking at things, Hope's life was hopeless. Hope was born with a rare metabolic disorder called Zellweger's syndrome. It meant that she was missing a tiny subcellular particle that rids the cells of toxins. On her second day of life, a geneticist told us that there was no treatment, there was no cure, and that most children with the syndrome live less than six months. And so when we took Hope home from the hospital, we weren't taking her home to live with us. We were taking her home to die. And I remember when that reality began to really hit me after we'd been home a couple of weeks. We know everyone will die someday, but this was different. I realized that the day was quickly approaching when Hope would either die in my arms or I would go to her crib and find her dead. And fear began to settle in on me I feared what her death would be like for her and for me and how difficult her life might become as we waited for that day to come. Hope was with us for 199 days and the day I dreaded came when David got up in the middle of the night to check on her and she was cold to the touch. And Jesus, the one who holds the keys to death, opened the door for her. You may also have faced a day like that, a death like that. Or maybe you have a deep-seated fear about the death of someone you love. Or maybe it's your own death that fills you with fear. This is why we really need to gaze intently at the glorified, resurrected Jesus that John presents for us in the words of this book. Through the words of this book, Jesus reaches out to us assuring us that we don't have to be afraid because he holds the keys to death. Aren't we blessed to have this kind of hope and assurance? And this is the vision that John has. And this is what he's holding forth to these believers. Many people are afraid of death. They're afraid of what lies beyond death. But Jesus says, I am the firstborn from among the dead. I died. I was dead, but now I am alive. And I hold the keys to death and hell. What of it? What does this mean to you and to me? This revelation of Jesus 
the risen Christ. I think the onus is upon us to put our trust in him, to put our hand in his. In John 3 verse 16, we hear the words of Jesus, which says, um, in John 3, God so loved the world. God so loved you, and you can put your name in there, God so loved you that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, won't ultimately die, but will have everlasting life. That is the promise of scriptures, the promise of Christianity, is that if you believe in Jesus, if you put your trust in him, you will not ultimately die, but you will have everlasting life. And I think we need to come with what we have. We may have a little bit of faith, a little bit of belief. We're not sure fully. We don't see clearly. But there was a man in the, in the Bible, a story is told, who brought his son to Jesus to heal him. And Jesus did heal him. But the father was struggling. He said, Jesus, I believe. Please help me overcome my unbelief. <laughs> I've got a little bit of faith here, but please help me to believe. And there is something in the Bible that's called a gift of faith. Uh, it is by faith that we are saved. It is by grace that we are saved, through faith. And this is not of yourself, the Bible says. It's a gift from God. It's a gift to you. It's a gift to me. And I think we could do worse this morning than to ask God for the gift of faith. To reach out to him and say, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I want to put my belief in Jesus Christ. I want to know that I'm going to spend eternity with him in heaven. That death has no hold on me. That I have nothing to fear when I pass through death. But I will pass through into the presence of God. This revelation of Jesus is for every one of us. And if you would reach out to him this morning and put your faith and your trust in him, I believe he will save you ultimately and give you eternal life. I'm going to pray now and I'm going to invite you to ask Jesus for this faith and to ask him to be your Lord and your King and to ask him to open your eyes so that you can see him afresh for yourself. Shall we pray? Now, I don't know where you are on this scale of faith. You may have very little or no faith. You may be a, a Christ follower, but who's struggling? I think we could all pray, Lord, I believe. Help me unbecome. Help me overcome my unbelief. Perhaps you would pray that quietly now where you are. I believe, Lord. Please help me overcome my unbelief. Please give me the gift of faith. Please open my eyes to see, my ears to hear, my heart to feel, my mind to understand the things of God. Please come into my life, into my vision, into my heart. Please change me. Please give me eternal life. I want to put my belief in you. I want to trust in you, Jesus. I want to encounter you, Jesus. I pray that I would do that today. I pray that you would put faith in my heart and in my life. 
I ask this in Jesus' name. And Father, I pray. I pray for everyone who's heard these words today as we look at Jesus, the risen Christ, the ancient of days. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our heart and our mind to understand and to grasp and to believe in Jesus and to have eternal life. I pray for those who are reaching out to you today and praying these words in their mind. I pray, God, that you would encounter them. I pray, God, that you would fill their life with faith and that you would change them from the inside out. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would do your work to reveal the Father, to reveal Jesus to each one of us. May we have a fresh revelation of who Jesus is and what he has done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.